You're listening to Amazing Discoveries Audio. This is Conflict and Triumph, Episode 6, with Walter Fite. Well, tonight is the last one in this series. It started off with uh, saying how God gathered all the truths during the Reformation and the post-Reformation period, how it came to the United States, how from there the truth was uh, developed and new truths were added, the character of God was again discussed, health issues were addressed, and then the final gathering of God's people. And then the conflict, the end-time conflict, and the messages of the three angels and Babylon has fallen and what that means and the invitation to come out of Babylon to the commandments of God. But God also has a people and God has a church and uh, the devil won't leave that alone either. And so we have to ask ourselves, how do we keep this institution how do we keep it pure? How do we keep it clean? What are the issues we need to look at? And I'm going to look at it from the typological level, and then we can draw our own conclusions as to what the spiritual ones will be. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have asked us to build a house, which we cannot build, which only you can build. And therefore we pray that this house that you have built will honor, bring honor and glory to your name. In Jesus' name, amen. So what does it mean to build me a house? Well, let's look at the Lord's covenant with David. And you have the two stories there in Chronicles and in the book of Samuel where the same things are recorded with a bit of variation, but we're just going to sketch a background. Now it came to pass, in 1 Chronicles 17, 1, as David sat in his house, that David said to Nathan the prophet, Lo, I dwell in a house of cedars, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord remains under curtains. Then Nathan said unto David, Do all that is in thine heart, for God is with thee. And then as he was Walking out that night, that same night, the word of God came to Nathan and he said, Go and tell David my servant, thus says the Lord, Thou shalt not build me a house to dwell in, for I have not dwelt in a house since the day that I brought up Israel unto this day, but have gone from tent to tent and from one tabernacle to another. Wheresoever I have walked with all Israel, spake I a word to any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to feed my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedars? Now therefore thus shalt I say unto my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took thee from the sheepcote, even from following the sheep, that thou shouldst be ruler over my people Israel. And I have been with thee whithersoever thou hast walked, and have cut off all thine enemies from before thee, and have made thee a name like the name of the great men that are in the earth. Also, I will ordain a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, 
and they shall dwell in their place and shall be moved no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness waste them any more as at the beginning. These are such beautiful promises. And since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, moreover I will subdue all thine enemies. Furthermore, I tell thee that the Lord will build thee a house. That's the house of David. Even he's going to get a house. Now this is a typological story because it never really reached its full completion in those days. And it shall come to pass when thy days be expired that they must go to be with thy fathers that I will raise up thy seed after thee which shall be of thy sons and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build me a house and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son and I will not take my mercy away from him as I took it from him that was before thee. But I will settle him in mine house and in my kingdom forever. And his throne shall be established forevermore. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so did Nathan speak unto David. Now obviously this is typological. Because it never happened forever and ever. It's a reference to Christ. And the real builder of the house is Christ. So David was very thankful and he prayed and he said, came, he sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me hither to? And yes, this was a small thing in thine eyes, O God, for thou hast spoken of thy servant's house for a great while to come and hast regarded me according to the estate of a man of high degree, O Lord God. Why are you doing this for me? Why am I also getting a house? Why is this kingdom handed over to me? This is a typological story. What can David speak more to thee for the honor of thy servant, for thy knowest thy servant? O Lord, for thy servant's sake and according to thine own heart hast thou done all this greatness in making known all these great things. O Lord, there is none like thee, neither is there any God beside thee according to all that we have heard with our ears. And what nation on earth is like thy people, Israel, whom God went to redeem to be his own people to make thee a name of greatness and terribleness by driving out nations from thy people whom thou hast redeemed out of Egypt? There is not another nation like this. God is talking to his people. They are his special people. For thy people Israel didst thou make thine own people forever. And thou, Lord, becamest their God. Now we know that literal Israel went over to spiritual Israel later. Verse 27 says, Now therefore let it please thee to bless the house of thy servant, that it may be before thee forever. For thou blessest, O Lord, and it shall be blessed forever. Now this house that was to be built, has a very specific story to tell. And there's a few points that I'd like to point out. In 1 Chronicles 29 verse 6 we read, Then the chief of the fathers and the princes of the tribes of Israel 
and the captains of thousands and of hundreds with the rulers of the king's work offered willingly. This is amazing. They offered willingly to the construction of the house. This was not tithe money. This was free will offering. Tithe money went to the Levites. This was free will offering to build the house of the Lord. We read in verse 13, And therefore, our God, we thank thee and praise thy glorious name. But who am I and what is my people that we should be able to offer so willingly after this sort? For all things come of thee and of thine own have we given thee. For we are strangers before thee and sojourners, as were all our fathers. Our days on the earth are as a shadow and there is nothing abiding. O Lord our God, all this store that we have prepared to build thee a house for thine holy name cometh of thine hand and it is all thine own. So the people offered willingly to build the house. But what does the house stand for? And what should we be prepared to offer willingly out of, not tithes, but out of offerings to grow the house of the Lord? Now there's some very interesting points as to the construction of this temple and the typology that is behind it. Firstly, it's very important to know where the temple was built. And the house is to be built on the threshing floor of Onan, the Jebusite. So if we look at the construction site today, this is where the temple is uh, on Mount Moriah, and next to it runs the Kidron Valley. And we'll talk about the significance of those. And we know the story, I'm just going to run through it. I did discuss it in a previous lecture, so I'm not going to go into any detail. And Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. And David said to Joab and the rulers of the people, Go number Israel from Bathsheba to Dan, and bring the number of them to me that I may know it. And even Joab, this hardened man, answered, The Lord make his people a hundred times so many more as they be, but my lord the king, are they not all my lord's servants? Then why doth my lord require this thing? Why will he be a cause of trespass to Israel? And I find this such an important point. We always stare at numbers. We shouldn't stare at numbers. Just do your work. Leave it to the Lord. The Lord can save by few and the Lord can save by many. That's not the point. And you might be thinking you're reaching one person. But when you think of how the preachers of old came into the truth, there was this evangelist, I think it was in the case of Wesley, if I remember it correctly, and he was preaching in a town. And uh, Wesley went to listen. I think it was Wesley, if I'm correct. And he was the only one there. Wesley was the only one. And the preacher thought to himself, this is a disaster, I've got no audience. But there's one sitting here, so I will preach. And look at the result. We always look at numbers. So we don't want to look at numbers, and we don't, certainly don't want to count, because we might just have to choose between three curses. Leave the numbers to God. 
Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab, and he brought him the sum, and he told him the sum, but God was displeased with this thing. Therefore he smote Israel, and God said unto God, I have sinned greatly because I have done this thing, but now I beseech thee, do away the iniquity of thy servant, for I have done very foolishly. We cannot judge a man's work by numbers. We cannot say that this is the criteria whereby we work. So if you look at AD, for example, Shabazz is working perhaps with eight people. But who knows what those eight people are going to do back where they go? You don't know. One speaks to another. We don't know the result. Leave the results to God. Leave the results. God was displeased, and the Lord spoke unto Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and tell David that I offer thee three things. Choose thee one of them, that I might do it unto thee. So, choose thee. Either three years of famine, three months to be destroyed before thy foes, while the sword of thine enemies overtaketh thee, or else three days the sword of the Lord, even the pestilence. And David said, I'll, I'll submit to God. Don't, don't put me in the hands of my enemies. Please don't do that. I'll, I'll submit to God. And David said unto Gad, I am in a great strait. Let me fall now into the hands of the Lord, for very great are his mercies. But let me not fall into the hands of man. And then God sent an angel unto Jerusalem to destroy it. Now here's a tremendous typology. Now, who would God have destroyed? God is not arbitrary. What he did is he cleansed Israel of those that would have defiled it and kept it from its purpose. And we cannot judge what God did there. In his great wisdom, God intervened. But he didn't wipe out David, who was responsible, because he saw that through the actions of David, even through his great sin, there would be great good that would come out of it eventually. And so Jerusalem represents God's people who would be destroyed without an intercessor. So he had to learn this. And David lifted up his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord stand between earth and heaven, that is, between death and life, having a drawn sword in his hand stretched out over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders of Israel, who were clothed in sackcloth, which is a prerequisite, Repentance is a condition. Fell upon their faces, and David said unto God, Is it not I that commanded the people to be numbered? Even I? It is that have sinned and done evil indeed. But as for these sheep, what have they done? Let thine hand, I pray thee, O Lord my God, be on me and on my father's house, but not on thy people, that they should be plagued. What is that a type of? That's a type of Christ. It's the same attitude that Moses had. Blot me from the book of life, but let them live. So here is a very deep typology. And then David built an altar where he saw the angel. And David went up of the saying of Gad, which he spoke in the name of the Lord, because he was told to build an altar unto the Lord on the threshing floor of Anan. And Onan turned back and saw the angel and his four sons with him hid themselves. 
he was threshing wheat. Now, this is a symbol of judgment where the chaff is separated from the wheat and the threshing floor is very important when you read uh, of the history of Israel. Great things happened at threshing floors. For example, Uzzah touched the ark at the threshing floor and there was a judgment. And as David came to Anan, that means that rejoices, Anan looked and saw David and went out of the threshing floor and bowed himself to David. And David said, grant me this place, this threshing floor. And he said, take it to thee, Lord, take it to thee. And David said, no, I won't take it what costs me nothing. I will surely pay for it. I will verily buy it for the full price, for I will not take that which is thine for the Lord, nor offer burnt offerings without cost. There's another typology there. If you want to accept the truth and you want to walk the ways of God, it's going to cost you something. He's not talking here literally of monetary things, but of, of spiritual things. And he paid 600 shekels and David built an altar there. And God called upon, and, and he called upon the Lord and he answered him from heaven by fire upon the altar of burnt offering. And the Lord commanded the angel and he put up his sword again in his sheath. And at that time when David saw the Lord had answered him on the threshing floor of Onan, the Jebusite, then he sacrificed there. So this threshing floor became the site of the temple. So obviously... The temple has to do with judgment because it's on the threshing floor. But the exact location is even more important than the fact that it is a threshing floor. It's the exact same place where Abraham prepared the sacrifice of Isaac and it is also the place where Jesus was crucified. And then David prepared to build the temple and he gathered stonemasons and abundance of material and cedars. And David said to Solomon, My son is young and tender, and the house that is to be built for the Lord must be exceeding magnificent. I like that English word. Exceeding magnificent of fame and of glory throughout how many countries? Oh. I will therefore now make preparations for it. So David prepared abundantly before his death. We must all prepare abundantly to expand the house of the Lord. So Solomon is the one that was to build the temple. And if we look at some of these meanings, Solomon, of course, means peace. It comes from shalom. It also means peaceable, perfect, one who recompenses. And it is a type of the Prince of Peace because Isaiah 9 verse 6 talks about Jesus. A child is born unto us, a son, and the government shall be on his shoulders and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. So this was just a typological building and it referred to a greater reality. And then he was charged to build the temple. Verse 9 in 1 Chronicles 22 says, Behold, a son shall be born of thee, speaking to David, who shall be a man of rest. What does that tell you? Who said, Come unto me? 
all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I shall give you rest. And I will give him rest from all his enemies above, for his name shall be Solomon. And I will give peace and quietness unto Israel in his days. And he shall build a house for my name, and he shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. And then the commission, the Lord be with thee, prosper thee, build the house of the Lord thy God, as he has said to thee. Today, those words are for every single one of us. Only the Lord God give thee wisdom and understanding and give thee charge concerning Israel that thou mayst keep the law of the Lord thy God. So here's a criterion for this house. Now Daniel speaks of a people that will lead many to righteousness. And he says these people understand. Understand what? The plan of salvation. And they have to Lead many to righteousness. Now, my son, the Lord be with thee and prosper thee and build the house of the Lord thy God as he said to thee. Only the Lord give thee wisdom, understanding, give thee charge concerning Israel that thou mayst keep the law of the Lord thy God. I have prepared for the house of the Lord a hundred thousand talents of gold, a thousand thousand talents of silver, and brass and iron without weight, for it is in abundance. Timber also and stone have I prepared that thou mayest add thereto. So if you really have it in your heart to help to build this house, will the Lord supply the means, yes or no? Yes, he will. He will. David also commanded the princes of Israel to help Solomon. So the princes help, but verse 15 says, Moreover, there are workmen with thee in abundance, hewers, workers of stone, timber, all manner of cunning men for every manner of work. This is what God needs to build his house. He needs variety. You cannot shape God's house on one person. There must be variety of gold, silver, brass. So David commanded all the princes of Israel to help Solomon, his son, saying, Is not the Lord your God with you? And has he not given you rest on every side? For he has given the inhabitants of the land into mine hand, and the land is subdued before the Lord and before his people. Now set your heart and your soul to seek the Lord your God. Arise, therefore, Build ye the sanctuary of the Lord God to bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord and the holy vessels of God into the house that is to be built to the name of the Lord. Now if we think of this house as the church, what must be in the house? Everything. The covenant, the holy vessels, the ark of the covenant must come in. And David said to Solomon, his son, be strong and of good courage. Do it. He's not talking to David, he's talking to us. Do it. Fear not, nor be dismayed, for the Lord thy God, even my God, will be with thee. 
He will not fail thee nor forsake thee until thou hast finished all the work for the service of the house of the Lord. He will not fail. It's a promise. And behold, the courses of the priests and the Levites, even they shall be with thee for the service of the house of God. And they shall be with thee for all manner of workmanship, every willing, skillful man. And that's important. Every willing, skillful man. For any manner of service, also the princes and all the people will be holy at thy commandment. So that was the typical house. And let's go now to the anti-typical house. Zechariah says in chapter 6, verse 12, And speak unto him, saying, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, and he shall grow up out of his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Who's going to build the temple? The branch. And that's Jesus. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule upon his throne, and he shall be priest upon his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. So this typologically refers to the house where Jesus will reign. So his church and Jesus are inseparable. John 2 verse 19, Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. But he spoke of the temple of his body. And then said, this fellow said, I'm able, in Matthew they argued about this, and says, this fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. Those are the two references in Mark and in Matthew. But what's he really talking about? If any man defile the temple, 1 Corinthians 3, 7, of God, him shall God destroy. This is a serious text. So read it again. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy. Which temple are ye? This is serious. Now there's an interesting story in the Bible as to what must happen when slaves are set free. And we read it in Exodus chapter 21 from verse 1. Now these are the judgments which thou shalt set before them. If thou buy a Hebrew servant, six years he shall serve, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he came in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he were married, then his wife shall go out with him. So if you got the slave and he was married, after the six years, you must let him go with his wife. But now, if his master has given him a wife, and she have borne him sons and daughters. The wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out by himself. He has to leave the wife and the children behind. Whoa, that's hard. And if the servant shall plainly say, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him unto the judges, 
and he shall also bring him to the door or unto the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. Forever. Now what does this story mean? Why did the Lord give such an ordinance? Let's go to Psalms 40 verse 6, a messianic psalm. Sacrifice and offering thou didst not desire. Mine ears hast thou opened. Burnt offering and sinned offering thou hast not required. Then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me. I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. Who is this he's speaking about? Jesus, right? But this verse, piece of the verse, mine ears hast thou opened. Now this word opened is kara. And it literally means a primitive root properly to dig, generally to bore or to open. Pierce with an awl. So who's the one who was to be married forever and chose to be the slave? Jesus. This was the typology. In other words, he so loved his wife. Who's his wife? The church. That he was prepared to leave heaven to be betrothed to his wife forever. For this reason, a man shall leave father and mother and cleave unto his wife. There's a fascinating typology there. Jeremiah 3.14 says, Turn, O backsliding children, says the Lord, for I am married unto you. And I will take you one out of a city, two out of a family, and I will bring you to Zion. This is how it works. Ephesians says the same thing. So ought men to love their wives as their bodies. He that loves his wife loves himself. For no man ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, even as the Lord, the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. This is what it's really about. So what must this church look like? What is the husband's heart like? I've come to do thy will. Lo, thy what is in my heart? Thy law. Revelation 19.7 Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of the Lamb is come and his wife has made herself ready and to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. So if we look at the foundation of the temple then what would be the foundation of the spiritual temple? 1 Corinthians 3.11 For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Hebrews tells us, For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch that he has builded the house, has more honor than the house. 
So who's the one who built it? Jesus. And the building material? 1 Peter 2.5 Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scriptures, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. So what's the building material? You are. That's why you must be hewn and squared in the quarry of this world. And when you are built into the house, not one hammer blow will be placed. Unfortunately, we are still in the quarry. Just in case you were thinking you're getting lucky, right? And then, built into the house. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Colossians 2.2, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love. So what glues the temple together? Love. And unto all riches of all full abundance of understanding. Understanding what? Again, the plan of salvation. To the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father of Christ. For we are laborers together with God. Ye are the husbandry. You are God's building. We need to understand the concept of the temple. Otherwise, we're just going to read a story about a temple that was destroyed. But there's a much deeper meaning, and we'll come to the deeper meaning in a moment. In whom the, all the building fitly framed together groweth in a holy temple into, unto the Lord. Ephesians. And are built upon the foundations of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So this is the house of the Lord. And we need to understand the great confession. Matthew 16, 13. When Jesus came into the coasts of Caesarea, Philippi asked his disciples, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, some say Elias, others say Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But that's not the question. Who do you say that I am? Notice that the word there is ye. Ye is plural. Who do ye say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, Blessed art thou. Simon Bariona, flesh and blood did not reveal this unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto thee, thou art Peter a rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And we know that that is not the physical Peter, but the great confession. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. If you do not have the great confession in your heart, you have no part in the temple. So don't let anyone write Jesus Christ out of the temple in terms of his divinity or any aspect. So some might want to build the church on Peter. Some might want to have Apollos or Paul. But God has already declared on which the foundation it is to be built. It's to be built on the great confession. 
So only in the light of the temple service can we catch a glimpse of the depth of the plan of salvation. Let's look at some of these points. The location is very important. The construction, how it's built, and the service. Now here's a map again. Here was the, the palace of the kings. This is where they lived. And on the other side was the temple site. And next to the temple site was the Kidron Valley down here. And this valley was also the king's garden. So that's where the gardens were. And part of the valley, if you went across, was uh, the garden of Gethsemane. All part of that valley. It's very important that we understand where it was. So let's have a look at the significance of the Kidron Valley and the temple site. Now, in the New Testament, only John's Gospel mentions the Kidron. Only one verse in the entire New Testament. That's John 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Kedron, which is Kidron in Greek, where was a garden into which he entered and his disciples. One verse saying that he crossed the Kidron and on the other side on the banks was the garden. That's all it says. Let's have a look at the relationship between the Gihon River, the Brook Kidron, and the Dead Sea. The Gihon River flowed through the Kidron Valley, also referred to as the Valley of Jehoshaphat. And it emerged in a cave on the eastern slope of the city of David above the Kidron Valley. And from there the waters flowed into the valley and the Gihon watered the terraced agricultural plots on the slopes of the city of David. This area was called the King's Garden. And the references are there in Jeremiah and Kings and Nehemiah. So the Kidron Valley is a deep valley to the northeast of Jerusalem. The Kidron begins northwest of Jerusalem at a height of so many, flows so many and so many feet and eventually is joined by several other valleys and the Kidron continues its path running in a winding course through the wilderness of Judea and ending on the northwestern shore of the Dead Sea. So this water flows from the temple site all the way through the desert, all the way to the Dead Sea. The scripture referred to the brook Kidron, which was located outside of Jerusalem, and a brook is a small natural stream of fresh water. So besides the river that flowed through when it rained particularly, there was also the little brook, a little natural stream. And in this instance, the brook Kidron refers to a stream of fresh water which flowed through the Kidron. And since the Gion River flowed through the Kidron Valley as well, we can safely determine that the brook Kidron carried the waters of the Gion all the way to the Dead Sea. King David passed over the brook as he fled from his son Absalom. The brook Kidron was used on occasion as a landmark for destroying objects by rebellious Jews and demon worship. The valley was a burial place for the dead. Most importantly, the Lord Jesus crossed the brook on his way to Gethsemane. 
And this was the location for the coronation of King Solomon. But there was another issue that was also important in that uh, particular valley, and we'll see in a moment. Joel 3 verse 2, I will gather all nations and will bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat. So where's that? That's the Kidron Valley, right next to the temple. And will plead with them, therefore, my people and for my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered amongst the nations and parted my land. Now the valley of Jehoshaphat, what is this? This is the name given in modern times to the valley between Jerusalem and the Mount Olives, and the Kidron flows through it. And here Jehoshaphat overthrew the confederate armies of Israel. And in this valley, God was to overthrow the Tyrians, the Zidonians, with an utter overthrow. So there were a few typological battles. And the valley of Jehoshaphat is equated with the which great battle at the end of time? Armageddon. So everything centers around this Kidron Valley. It was also a burial ground, and there are some tombs there. So there's a startling parallel between the end point of the Gion River and the end point of the river seen in the vision told by the prophet Ezekiel. So the prophet Ezekiel brings this vision to the front, or has a vision of this, uh, these waters, and where the waters are mentioned as they flow into the Dead Sea. Let's have a look at some of those verses. Ezekiel 47 verse 1, Afterwards he brought me again unto the door of the house, and behold, water issued out from under the threshold of the house eastward. For the forefront of the house stood towards the east, and the waters came down from under the right side of the house at the south side of the altar. Then brought he me out of the way of the gate of the northward, and led me about the way without unto the utter gate, by the way that looketh eastward, and behold, there ran out waters on the right side. And when the man that had the line in his hand went forth eastward, he measured a thousand cubits and brought me through the waters. The waters were to the ankles. Again, he measured a thousand and brought me through the waters. The waters were to the knees. Again, he measured a thousand and brought me to the waters, and they were to the loins. Afterwards he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not pass over, for the waters were risen, waters to swim in, a river that could not be passed over. So he see these, sees these waters increasing and increasing and increasing. And he said unto me, Son of man, hast thou seen this? Then he brought me and caused me to return to the brink of the river. Now when I had returned, behold, at the bank of the river were many trees on one side and the other. What's a tree stand for in the Bible? People. People. And there were many trees. And where were they? On the banks of the river. Then he said unto me, These waters issue out towards the east country and go down into the desert, and they go into the sea, which being brought forth into the seas, the waters shall be healed. Which waters is he speaking about? Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is dead. There's nothing there. Those waters will be healed. In other words, death will come to life if this water in this flowing flood reaches the Dead Sea. 
And shall come to pass that everything that liveth which moveth with so ever the river shall come, shall live. Wherever that river goes, there will be life. Where that river does not go, there will be no life. Desert. Death. And there shall be a very great multitude of fish. Because these waters shall come thither, for they shall be healed. And everything shall live whither the river cometh. And it shall come to pass that fishers shall stand upon it from Engedi even to Enaglim, and they shall be a place to spread forth nets. Their fish shall be according to their kinds, as the fish of the great sea exceedingly many. Are you beginning to get a typology here? But the miry places thereof and the marshes thereof shall not be healed. They shall be given to salts. And by the river upon the banks thereof and on this side and on that side shall grow all trees for meat, whose leaves shall not fade, neither shall the fruit thereof be consumed. So the trees that are planted along the river, they shall bear fruit. Fascinating. And it shall bring forth new fruit according to his months, because their waters they issued out of the sanctuary. This is interesting. These waters issued out of the sanctuary, and the fruit thereof shall be for meat, and the leaf thereof for medicine. So now it's interesting that as we are looking at the news media today, there's great excitement in Israel because life is returning to the Dead Sea. And they say that this is the literal fulfillment of the prophecy of Ezekiel. So Israel today, Dead Sea comes to life. It's salty, etc., etc. But fish are beginning to come to the area around the Dead Sea. Here's another breaking Israel news. Fulfillment of the Dead Sea prophecy has begun. These waters issued forth and they quote Ezekiel and they say, This is happening right now, so this is the fulfillment of prophecy. Is the Lord interested in literal fish? No. Fish in the Bible are people that are caught in the gospel net. So let's have a look at this typology. Because this water came out of where? Out of the side of the what? Out of the side of the temple. We need to understand this. There were blood sacrifices in the temple for priestly sin, Leviticus 4, 7. The priest shall put some of the blood upon the horns of the altar of sweet incense before the Lord, which is in the tabernacle of the congregation, and shall pour all the blood of the bullock at the bottom of the altar of burnt offering. Where was the altar of burnt offering? In the outer court. Now that altar was surrounded with a marble floor, and they had to throw the blood of the bullock out at the base of the altar. Plus every other offering that ever took place, some was placed on the horns of the altar, some was sprinkled, but the bulk of the blood went into at the base of the altar. For congregational sin, the priest that is anointed shall bring of the bullock's blood to the tabernacle, it will be slaughtered, and then what will happen with the blood? And he shall pour out all the blood at the bottom of the altar of burnt offering. That was a huge quantity of blood. And sometimes thousands of animals were sacrificed, and all that blood was poured out 
at the base of the altar. At the festival of tabernacles, has most scripturally commanded sacrifices of the two holy times, see Numbers 29, but it is Passover that ends up surpassing tabernacles when the offering of Passover lambs by all the heads of Israel families in the country is factored into account. An incredible amount of blood is poured out during the two events, but the most astonishing flow unquestionably happens at Passover. Now, it wasn't actually legal to pour the blood onto a marbled floor because God had said the blood had to be poured on the ground. So we have to satisfy that criterion. So if you look at the Mishmach, Mido, 3, 2 to 3, the blood of the sacrifice would be poured at the base of the altar, fulfilling the Torah's repeated command, and then the blood would trickle down the underground shisin. That's a tunnel, like this. So at the base of the altar, there was a tunnel, and that would take the blood away. And where would that go? Ingenious system of pits under the altar of the temple courtyard. The pits drained the system is referred to in Hebrew writings as shitin or shitin. In Genesis 4, verse 10, we read, And he said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood cries out unto me from the ground. Deuteronomy 15, 23, And thou shalt not eat the blood thereof, and shalt pour it upon the ground as water. Luke twenty two forty four. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Ezekiel 24, 6, Wherefore thus says the Lord, Woe to the bloody city, to the pot whose scum is therein, and whose scum is not gone out of it. Bring it out piece by piece, and let not no lot fall upon it, for her blood is in the midst of her. She set it upon the top of a rock. She poured it not upon the ground to cover it with dust. All the blood had to be poured out on the ground. And in order to achieve this, this tunnel system took it to the brook Kidron or to the Kidron Valley and it flowed onto the ground in the Kidron Valley. Now, what happens to thick blood when you put it into a system? What will it do? It'll coagulate. It'll be a tremendous mess. So the only way to get it down there is when they poured it out, what did they pour over with it? Water. So there was always a flow of blood and water out of the temple into the Kidron. Now, the Jews always took everything to excess. The Bible never said they should do this, but they did this because they thought... This blood was just the way it had to be. So if you read the Talmud and the Pesachim 65b, it says, It was taught, Rabbi Jehuda said to the sages, According to your words, why did they plug the holes in the courtyard? Said they to him, It is laudable for the sons of Aaron to walk until their ankles are in blood. So they used to plug those holes, and they used to walk in the blood. A few passages down, we read that the drain holes at the base of the altar that normally kept the blood of the sacrifice from pooling were deliberately plugged during the holy day of Passover. 
Now, God never ordained that. This is a, a, a mythology that was added. And the blood of the sacrifices at the altar, when poured at the base, drowns down into the Shisin and emptied into the Kidron Brook. And it's interesting that the text adds a new detail to the narrative that it was then sold to gardeners as a fertilizing agent. So if you want to have a look at it, there was the temple on top of Mount Moriah and the draining Shechin drained out and the blood poured down into the Kidron and the water was poured out with it and it mingled in the Kidron and this blood and water flowed where? Through the desert all the way to the Dead Sea and where this water flowed there life returned. So obviously this blood and this water refers to the blood of the Lamb that would heal the nations. And Tony Badillo in his article, Jesus and the Blood and the Water, has some interesting points. John 19.34 But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came there out blood and water. Let me emphasize, according to John, in fulfilling the Passover scripture, Jesus became not only the atoning Lamb of God, but also the new temple through which the divine spirit symbolized by water could now flow unto the masses as it had been symbolized by the gushing drains of King Solomon's temple and later by Herod's temple. To John, at least, the blood and the water was proof that the temple building and its sacrifice paralleled Jesus' body in his crucifixion. Now let's have a look at the Kidron. The Kidron was the valley of cleansing. It was for atonement. It was the valley of decision. And it was the valley of judgment. Final judgment. The valley of blood and water is the healing stream. It is the blood that atones for the sin. It is the water of baptism that symbolizes the new birth. We all have to cross the Kidron in its cleansing stream, we must be washed. Jesus crossed the Kidron. If we don't cross the Kidron, if we don't, do not come into contact with the healing blood and water, we cannot be saved. And only a tree that is planted on that blood and that water can live. And as we look through the stream of time, what will happen to the size of that stream? It will first flow to the ankles, and then it will flow to the loins, and then it will flow so that we cannot even cross it. We are heading for that time. God's people have to work at this temple. But in order to be ready to bring the message, something must happen to us. So Jesus crossed it, and his sweats of blood were betrayed, and then went to pay the price for transgression. And here's the tomb of Absalom. It's a valley of decision. It's a, it's a choice of life and death. Absalom make the wrong choice. That same Kidron Valley that saves lives can also condemn you to death if you do not live up to the principles. And David crossed the Kidron to escape the betrayal of Absalom. Jesus crossed the Kidron to accept the betrayal of Judas. It's incredible typology. 
Genesis 14, verse 17. And the king of Sodom, here's another important point, went out to meet Abraham after his return from the slaughter of Shetalaoma and the kings that were with him at the valley of Shaveh, which is the king's dale. Right in the beginning, everything happened in that Kidron Valley, because this is the same valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine. And he was the priest of the Most High God, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth, and he blessed be the Most High God, which has delivered thine enemies into thine hand. And he gave him tithes of all. Where did he let the captives go free? At this valley. Now just imagine this. Where were the captives taken? Where was Lot taken? He lived in Sodom, didn't he? But he didn't bring the captives to Sodom and say to the kings of Sodom, here are the captives and everyone that was taken. No. He took the captives that were plucked out of the hand of the enemy. And by the way, one of those kings that plucked them out of the hands was the king of the north, was the king of Babylon. And he brought those that were plucked out of the king's hand, out of the king of Babylon's hand, not to Sodom. He brought them to the Kidron Valley. And there they were set free. And what was he paid for it? Nothing, not a shoestring. But he gave Melchizedek a tithe of all. And the king of Sodom said unto Abraham, Give me the persons and take the goods for thyself. And Abraham said to the king, I have lifted up mine hand unto the Lord and the Most High God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from, it, from a thread even to a shoe latchet, and that I will not take anything that is thine, lest thou should say, I have made Abraham rich. How did you get rich in the old day? Well, how was your richness counted? By your children. By your children. Revelation 3.12 Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from God, and I will write upon him my new name. So this temple constitutes the redeemed of Jesus Christ. And in the heart of the temple is the law, a transcript of the character of Christ. In the temple there is no room for defilement. Now we get to another point. There's no room for defilement in the temple. Did the Israelites frequently defile the temple, yes or no? That was the literal temple. It was a type. Do you think anti-typical temp the temple will also be defiled? Of course, if the type was defiled, the anti-type will also be defiled. So what must be done to a temple that's defiled? It must be cleansed. Okay, so in the heart was the law, and this temple there's no room for defilement. Not only must the record of sin must be removed, but all forms of idolatry must also be removed before the new name can be written on the inhabitants. So idolatry is part of the carnal nature and must be removed from the temple. It's speaking of us individually as a temple, 
and it's speaking of us as a church built into the temple. You are the living stones, the building is the church, and individually we need to cleanse our heart of idolatry, and the temple itself, the church, must be cleansed of idolatry. And how does that happen? Well, what happened in the past? In the past, all idols were always destroyed in the Kidron Valley because that's the only place where they can be destroyed. The only place, nowhere else. So let's have a look at a few examples. King Asa cleanses the temple. 1 Kings 15:11. And Asa did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord, as did David his father. And he took away the Sodomites out of the land. Think that one over for a little while. Let that pass through the chambers of your mind. And removed all the idols that his father had made. And also Machai, his mother. And he removed her from being queen because she had made an idol in the grove and Asa destroyed her idol and burnt it at the brook Kidron. There's no room for idolatry in the plan of salvation where you are saved by the blood of the Lamb. We cannot have the ideas of other churches and especially not of a mother church within our temple and teach atonements that are not in harmony with the blood and the water. It has to be cleansed from this church. It has to be removed. It has to be destroyed in the brook Kidron because only with truth can you destroy idolatry. 200 years later, Hezekiah cleanses the temple and the priests went into the inner part of the house. Where did they go? So where was me go? We must go into the inner parts of the house. And he brought out all the uncleanness that they found in the temple of the Lord, into the court of the house of the Lord. And the Levites took it to carry it out abroad, where? Into the brook Kidron. And now they began on the first day of the first month to sanctify, and on the eighth day of the month came they to the porch of the Lord. So they sanctified the house of the Lord in eight days, and in the sixteenth day of the first month they made an end. Then they went into Hezekiah the king and said, We have cleansed all the house of the Lord, and the altar of burnt offering, and all the vessels thereof, and the showbread table, and all the vessels thereof. Then about a hundred years later, Josiah also cleansed the temple. And he had Hilkiah, the high priest, remove the idols and reduce them to ashes, to dust. 2 Kings 23, 6. And he brought out the grove from the house of the Lord without Jerusalem. So the grove was an idol. There could also be a forest in which there were idols. But there was an idol in it. And he brought it to the brook Kidron and he burnt it at the brook Kidron and stamped all the small powder and cast the powder thereof upon the graves of the children of the people. And he broke down the houses of the Sodomites that were by the house of the Lord where the women wove hangings for the grove. And he brought all the priests out of the cities of Judah and defiled the high places where the priests had burnt incense from Geba to Beersheba and break down the high places of the gates that were in the entering of the gates of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were on a man's left hand at the gate of the city. 
before this temple is cleared of idolatry, of false teachings, we will not be able to do what we are supposed to do, and we will see what we will have to do. Because the promise is that we have a particular mission, and if we fulfill this mission, well, then we will be doing what the house requires. Isaiah says, chapter 43, Fear not, for I am with thee. I will bring thy seed from the east and gather thee from the west. This is now what God's people must do. But it cannot be a defiled house that is going to do this. And I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, keep not back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. A universal message. Even everyone that is called by my name, for I have created him for my glory. I have formed him, yea, I have made him. Bring forth the blind people that have eyes and the deaf that have ears. Let all the nations be gathered together. You are my witnesses. I show you former things. Let them bring forth the witnesses. This is our job. But what must the temple look like? Now notice the hunters and the fishers. What will be in those rivers and even in the Dead Sea eventually? Fish. Therefore behold the days come, says the Lord in Jeremiah 16, that I shall no more be said the Lord liveth, that brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But the Lord liveth that brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north. Where's the north? Babylon. What's our clarion call at the end of time? Come out of her. This is our job. From all the lands which he had driven them, and I will bring them again into their land that they gave unto their fathers. Behold, I will send for my... Fishers, says the Lord, and they shall fish them. And after will I send many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain. And a mountain is a what? It's a kingdom. And from every hill and out of the holes of the rocks, for mine eyes are upon all their ways. They are not hid from my face, neither is their iniquity hid from mine eyes. And first I will recompense their iniquity and their sins double. Because they have defiled my land, they have filled mine inheritance with the carcasses of their detestable and abominable things. O Lord, my strength and my fortress and my refuge in the day of affliction, the Gentiles shall come unto thee from the ends of the earth and shall say, and this is one of my favorite texts these days, surely we have inherited lies vanity, and things there is no profit. These poor people out there, they've been lied to. They've been duped on every single level. You name it, they've been lied to. I have a PhD in lies. Evolution. You name it. False plans of salvation duped on the basis of health and health reform. And these people will come, and they will come from all parts of the world, and I'm sure we are seeing some of them in this audience here today, who will say, surely we have been lied to. And they come to a people that have understanding and understand these things. And shall a man make gods unto himself that are no gods? Therefore, behold, 
I will this once cause them to know. I will cause them to know mine hand and my might, and they shall know that my name is the Lord. And this is what the Spirit of Prophecy says about this. Evangelists and pastors are needed. God calls for evangelists. A true evangelist is a lover of souls. He hunts and fishes for men. Surely this is inspired. Isn't it? It's amazing. Pastors are needed. Faithful shepherds who will not flatter God's people or treat them harshly. I love that. You will not flatter nor treat them harshly, but who will feed them with the bread of life. I was now on this trip just before I came here. I was in Toronto. And a little old lady, well in her 80s, just small, all scrumpled up, came and grabbed me. And she pulled me to the side. And she clung to me. And she couldn't even speak. She just started crying and crying and crying. And I put my arm around her and I said, what's wrong? How can I help you? And she said, I'm lost. So I said, why are you lost? Little old lady. I don't know how old she was deep in her 80s, if she wasn't 90. Why are you saying you're lost? She says, I've done so many terrible things of, in my life and I've sinned so much and I'm sure God can't forgive me. So I said to her, are you feeling sorrow at the moment? Are you crying? And she said, yes, I'm crying. And I said, well, that's proof to you that God hasn't stopped talking to your heart. It's the greatest evidence that you're not lost, that he's calling you. Just a little bit of hope. That's what people sometimes need. They need just a little bit of hope. You mustn't flatter them. You mustn't tell them, oh, it doesn't matter. God will forgive. doesn't matter. You can carry on. No, don't flatter God's people, but don't treat them harshly. But we'll feed them with the bread of life. The work of every faithful laborer lies close to the heart of him who gave himself for the redemption of the race. The truth is to be born to those who know it not. This is our job. These are our marching orders. Labor for souls as they who must give an account to God. For every one of you will be called to account for what you ought to have done and did not do. God wants you to be faithful stewards. He wants you to seek for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He wants you to be hunters and fishers for souls. Why does this ministry exist? What is the aim of this ministry that you are sitting here today? To be hunters and fishers for souls. To put the truth out there. To put it out straight so that people know this is the path, walk in it. And to be gentle and kind and loving and all the other attributes as well. And to treat no one harshly. And how can the Lord work when his house is in such a state? He cannot work. He cannot operate. But he wants us to 
build his house. How do we build a house? Why are the mainline churches, why are the church, why is our church not doing the work that it should be doing? Because it has so many idols in it. It has to be cleansed. So must we wait until the world is lost before we start the work of being hunters and fishers of men? No. So what does God do in his desperation? I'm convinced that he raises up these ministries to do the work. That's what he does. And how does how's this work supported? We're all millionaires, right? We just keep on going, right? Doesn't work that way. That's not the way it is supported. How was the house built? What did he ask for? What did God ask his people to make the house to be built? Free will offering. This ministry has decided tithe belongs to God. But free will offerings, if they can further the work, I would make an appeal. Help. Come to the help of the Lord. Come to the help of the Lord. He wants to see manifested in you the living faith which knows how to labor for souls. He will use men who will seek earnestly for sinners, who will go down on their knees and pray with them. God wants you to make more earnest efforts than ever before to go into the regions beyond. Not everybody has the ability to go into the regions beyond, but the waves that are emanating out of this house tonight are going into the regions beyond. Amen. We can support it. We can work with it. We can send the message out. Some people say, oh, you're just doing this for fame. You're doing this for money. Sleepless nights, airplanes, never being at home. I would like them to come and see how marvelously rich you become in this process. The people that are involved here, if you have felt that the Spirit of God was in this place in this week, everyone that played a part, young and old, weren't they earnestly just trying to get the message out to save souls? That's what it is about. I want to invite everybody out there to become a partaker in taking the message. And as I said before, nobody gets baptized into this ministry. You get baptized into the church. And the Lord will shake his church when the time comes. And the whole church all over the world will bring the loud cry. But are we going to hinder the drops that could be falling now? God wants you to make more earnest efforts than ever before to go into the regions beyond. And when the next conference is held, it will be found that churches have been established in many places. Angels of God are waiting for an opportunity to work. That's all that he seeks. Romans 10, 13, And whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And how then shall they call on him whom they have not believed? How could I have called upon the name of the Lord when I was an atheist? If somebody hadn't come to me, what would have happened to me? 
What would have happened to my wife? What would have happened to the ministries? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. We need pure, unadulterated preaching of the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, verily, their sound went out into all the earth, and their words unto the ends of the world. I believe AD is part of that. It's not the only one. There are many others. But I believe this one is really trying to get out the message that is in harmony with the Bible and the spirit of prophecy to reach people out there. But I say, did not Israel know? First Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people, and by a foolish nation I will anger you. But Isaiah is very bold and says, For found of them that sought me not. I was made manifest unto them that asked not for me. But to Israel, he says, All day long I have stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. Don't worry about what the others do. Let us do what is right. Let us do what is right. Again, I appeal to members of the church to be Christians, to be Christ-like. Jesus was a worker. Not for himself, but for others. He labored to bless and save the lost. My brethren and sisters, awake, I beseech you from the sleep of death. It is too late to devote the strength of brain, bone, muscle to self-serving. Let not the last day find you destitute of heavenly treasure. Seek to push the triumphs of the cross Seek to enlighten souls. Labor for salvation of your fellow beings. And your work will abide the trying test of fire. And here is the promise of victory. Isaiah 41 verse 8. But thou, Israel, art my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend. Thou whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called thee from the chief men thereof, and said unto thee, Thou art my servant, I have chosen thee, and not cast thee away. Fear thou not, I am with thee, be not be dismayed. I am your God, I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my right hand of my righteousness. Behold, all they that were incensed against you shall be ashamed and confounded. They shall be as nothing, and they that strive with thee shall perish. With such promises... Why should we not succeed? Is our God a liar? May God help us to understand the times we are living in. And let's work at building him a house. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we have neglected the work. Lecture after lecture this week. Verse after verse on the screen. Statement of the statement of what the health work should be like and where it is not. We admit our guilt. We admit our sin. We have neglected that which you have called us to do. 
But I pray, Lord, empower your people. Wake them up. May they be partakers in this great effort to bring the truth to the dying world. And even if it is small, let us start here and there and let flames like in a bushfire jump up here and jump up there, kilometers away, propagating the work and doing that which we should have been doing for the last 156 years. Forgive us, Lord, for our weaknesses. Forgive us our sins. But please, Lord, be with us according to this promise that is on the screen. And let us together build the house. In Jesus' name, amen. If this episode impacted you, please share it with others. Amazing Discoveries is a donor-supported ministry. To help us keep producing content like this, visit AmazingDiscoveries.org. And, as always, you can find the visual presentation of this episode on ADTV.watch.